On this episode, I'm in the room with Vince Antonucci discussing his book, God for the Rest of Us. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 44. I'm Ryan Hughley, and if you're listening for the first time, I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. I'd love to stay connected online, so visit my blog at ryanhughley.com to find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. In the Room is your opportunity to eavesdrop on my conversations with interesting people. Each week, I sit down with people of varied backgrounds, perspectives, and vocations. So I talk with pastors, professors, authors, and artists about their stories, their crafts, and how they do what they do. This week, I'm in the room with Vince Antonucci. Vince planted and pastors a church called Verve in Las Vegas, Nevada for people living and working on the Las Vegas Strip. He's recently written a new book called God for the Rest of Us, Experience Unbelievable Love, Unlimited Hope, and Uncommon Grace. In my conversation with Vince, we discuss growing up with a dad on the run from the law, the challenges of pastoring on the Strip, how stand-up comedy compares to preaching, and why so many feel beyond the love of God. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you will too. So come on in the room for my chat with Vince Antonucci. Well, Vince, thanks so much for coming on in the room. Excited to have you and excited about your new book, uh, God for the Rest of Us. Uh, Before we get to that, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you if we could. And uh, so if we could just start at the beginning, uh, where are you from originally? Because you're not originally from Las Vegas, correct? Right. I, uh, I was born in Miami, Florida, and then I moved around a lot. I moved from Florida to New Jersey, back to Florida, and then to upstate New York. Uh, so I moved all over the place. All right. Why did you have to move? So my dad was in the military, so we moved for that. What, what caused yeah. your moving so much? My dad was wanted. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. So he was wanted by the police. He had uh, off and on had different people who wanted to kill him. He thought he was wanted by the FBI. I doubt it. Okay. Um, and so we were constantly on the run. We often moved in the middle of the night. He would uh, come home from something and wake me and my sister up and say, we're moving, grab a couple of things. And we would just grab something and, and get, go out to the car. Or once in a while I got a truck. And so we just moved from place to place trying to avoid people. So did you even think about that as a kid or I like, I can't even imagine that, but that, but was that just normal for you guys? Uh, it was normal. I think, I think I knew that it wasn't normal, but for me it was normal. And yeah. I mean, from as early as I can remember, we had people throw bricks through our window. Wow. Um, we had, uh, I mean, I had this recurring nightmare of a police car. I just saw like police lights and it would come bursting through my bedroom wall and I would just wake up. And so my, my father could never drive because if we got pulled over, they might realize it was him. And right. so, yeah, it was normal for me, even though I think I knew it wasn't normal. Man. So, uh, dad was not a believer growing no. up. You know, you guys no. weren't probably going to church is right. my assumption. And then did I read, was your mom Jewish? Yeah, my mother's Jewish. My dad, okay. he was a, a professional gambler, okay. um, but he was a con man. And so he would steal money or use people to get their money to gamble with, which led to all the problems. And so, yeah, never went to church a single time growing up. So how did, how did you yeah. come to faith then yeah. with, without so, the family aspect? Right. So I, not only did I not uh, go to church, I say I never met a Christian. I must have met a Christian, but no one ever identified themselves that sure. way. No one ever mentioned Jesus or told me God loves me or invited me to church. So literally, like 20, my first 20 years of life, I could not have told you a single thing about Jesus or from the Bible. Wow. And uh, at the towards the end of my sophomore year of college, it was Easter morning, and I was waiting for my girlfriend to go out to lunch. She was late. I turned on the TV in our dorm, and we only had three channels. We didn't have cable. And every channel had on 
what I consider to be a dumb religious show. And so uh, I left one off for a second just because it looked funny. Uh, it was this old, old man, and he was sitting like way shrunk down like this in, yeah. a, in a red leather chair. And I just laughed. And I was just like, who is this guy like right. sitting like that? And, uh, and he started to talk, and he said, um, he said, now, we've been discussing the last week of Jesus Christ's life. And today we're going to talk about, and honestly, I don't remember what it was, right. whatever event just went right past me. But then he said, uh, now, most scholars believe that this happened event happened on the Tuesday of Jesus last week, but today I will prove to you through the evidence that it actually occurred on the Wednesday of Jesus last right. week. So that was the first thing I ever heard about Jesus, okay. and I just thought, eh, that's got to be the stupidest thing I have ever heard. I mean, I don't know if Jesus lived at all, but if he did, it was you know thousands of years ago, and you're talking yeah. about Tuesday or Wednesday, right. and I just turned off the TV and discussed, went out to lunch. But for the rest of the day, for reasons I could not understand, and now I would attribute to God, I couldn't stop thinking about what he said. Like, yeah. just all these questions. Like, why did he use the word evidence? Um, why did he care if it was Tuesday or Wednesday? Did anyone ever get him out of that chair? Just right. all these questions. And so that uh, night, I was sitting in my girlfriend's dorm room where I'd been, I don't know, dozens and dozens of times. And I noticed on her bookshelf that she had a Bible. I just never noticed it before. And I said, hey, why do you have a Bible? And she said, oh, man, uh, somebody gave that to me once as a, like a Christmas gift or something. I've, I don't know. And I was like, can I borrow it? And she's like, I don't want it. You can have it. If you don't want it, just throw yeah. it out. And I was like, okay. So I took it back to my dorm room, and I'd never touched a Bible, didn't know anything. Um, I opened it not knowing like how it would be set up, right. but assuming it would be like the TV guide by day and time because the whole Tuesday-Wednesday debate <laughs> right. was apparently tearing up Christianity. Yeah. And it was a student Bible, uh, which is – probably why I'm, I'm a, a Christian today, because instead of getting to Genesis 1-1, and I don't know, I have no idea how I would have responded to starting to read Genesis, but it, a student Bible, the first thing it says is reading plans. And so it says like reading plan through, I'm flipping through Abraham's life. I'm like, Lincoln, right, uh, through right. Moses' life, David's life. And finally, I see reading plan through Jesus' life. And I thought, all right, I'll, I'll do that one. I mean, let's figure this out. Was it Tuesday or Wednesday? Right. And I'm just curious. I, I wasn't like, I can't wait to find out about, G-. you know, I just thought, what is this? And started reading um, and was stunned because I thought it would read like a tall tale or a myth. But over and over, it would say Jesus at this particular time, you know, when this guy was the governor, this guy was a tetrarch, this guy was the high priest, went, went to this particular city and did this particular thing. And I realized, well, there would be evidence. I mean, you could find out if that really happened or not when you get right. a time and place. So I got intrigued, kept reading, found out that God loved me, wanted a relationship with me. Um, I was a, a pre-law major. I did end up going to law school. And so I was into evidence and proving and disproving things. And so I, I thought man, if this is true, I want to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. And if it's not true, I want to spend the rest of my life making fun of Christians for believing in something I could prove was false. Right. And so I started trying to disprove the Bible, going to the library, looking up stuff. And uh, eventually, honestly, pretty quickly, I just ran into the volumes of evidence that support the Bible. And, uh, and pretty soon I had like basically no room left for doubt. And I was just overwhelmed with Jesus, just yeah. who he was as I read the stories and was like, I want to spend the rest of my life with this guy. Like, yeah. I, I don't want to live another day of my life with this guy in the middle of it. But and your big journey of coming to faith all started with you trying to disprove the whole yeah. thing. That's yep, amazing. Totally. Yeah. I, I wonder about this uh, just in listening to you talk. Do you, because it's so clear in reading your book and then knowing just a little bit about your churches and that you've you know been a part of and 
uh, the ministry that you're doing now, you have a big time evangelistic heart and want to see people come to faith. Do you ever see any connection or correlation between people who come to faith later in life like you did and them being more zealous evangelists than say maybe people who grew up in the church and are more... I guess right. in a, from a, this sounds negative. I don't necessarily mean it, but that way, but are more inoculated to the whole right. thing. Uh, yeah. Do you ever, do you see that connection? Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's a, a, like a perfect correlation. Cause yeah. I, I do know people who grew up in church who are really evangelistic. And I know people who came faith later who aren't, but I do think more than not, that tends to be true. I think when you're like me and you live 20 years without Jesus, you know what it's like to live without Jesus yeah. and you don't want anyone to have to live that way. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, so I, I do think yeah. there is some of that for well, sure. Tell me a little bit then about your ministry path. So yeah. you were, you know, pre-law or going to law school at U of I. And I know that you planted a church in Virginia Beach, but now you're in Las Vegas. So just yeah. connect some of those dots if you could. Yeah. So I went to law school at the University of Illinois mm-hmm. and I, in the middle of it, just realized this is not, I actually love law school and most everybody hates it, but they're just in it for the money. And yeah. I was like one of the few people who was like, this is fun. I love it. Right. But I just felt like this isn't what I want to do in my life. Transferred to seminary. Um, didn't even know that there was such a thing as starting a new church. Like I just, thought that the churches that are, are there. And, right. and uh, at seminary, I found out about church planting and that it tends to be the most effective way to lead lots of new people to faith. And so I was like, okay, like I just want to help people find Jesus, whatever that is. And so I ended up starting a church in Virginia Beach, and I was there for 12 years. And uh, there, you know, we knew there were lots of good churches in Virginia Beach, but we wanted to be the church that reached people that those good churches weren't reaching. And so we saw just crazy stories those 12 years. Um, saw about a thousand people come to, to faith and wow. most of them were like stories that you rarely hear. Yeah. Uh, and then, and thought I would, I plan on living there forever. Loved it. Wonder, you know, someday retire there or die there or whatever. And, um, and then we just had this real strong sense that God was calling us to Las Vegas, uh, which initially we said no to. And I said no under the guise of how do I know that's God? Mm-hmm. You know, that maybe it's just my crazy imagination or whatever. And I didn't want to start another church, didn't want to move to Las Vegas. But uh, God had a series of events that kind of confirmed the calling, I guess. I had strangers, uh, one in a different country, say to me, you're supposed to start a church in Las Vegas. And it was just this bizarre sequence yeah. of events. And Can, and I, I, can at, I ask you, like, what... Yeah. what- so if, how did you go from a place of feeling like Virginia Beach is where I want to die? Uh-huh. And I used to live in Newport News for a while. Oh, wow. my, yeah. my dad was stationed out there. And so it's a beautiful area. Virginia Beach is yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, so what did that look like? Like that, that sort of, did it start as like a discontent? Did something happen? What, right. what was the, the sort of decision point that you guys started to sense? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I think God's leading us somewhere else. So it sounds crazy. Yeah. And if I heard somebody else say it, I'd be like, oh, that's really weird. But I was actually, we had gotten a new dog and I decided to take this new dog for a walk, which I think was probably one of the only two or three times I've ever taken him for a walk. Okay. But, uh, so I took him for a walk. I'm walking along. I don't, I don't think I was thinking about anything. I was, I wasn't praying. And all of a sudden I got this, uh, I I didn't hear anything out loud, but it was like, it was like God spoke to me and said, you're supposed to start a church in Las Vegas. Like I actually stopped in my tracks and was like, what just happened? And I, I admire or I envy people who have a lot of experiences like that. Mm-hmm. I don't like, yeah. I don't have a lot of God spoke to me and it right. was so clear. You know, I, I sometimes feel like God's nudging me to talk to somebody or whatever, but not like God clearly said something. Sure. 
And so it was just weird. And I I share everything with my wife, but that was one thing I did not share with her. Uh, For a while, I was just like, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to think about this. I don't want to do it. And finally, but every day I kept uh, just thinking about it. I couldn't stop. Like it was like, and it makes sense, even though I don't want to do it. Make like my father ruined his life in Las Vegas. He ruined his marriage, my parents' marriage in Las Vegas. He ruined my childhood in Las Vegas. It would be just like God to take all that pain and redeem it and, right. and kind of create this poetic storyline for my life that I go there and help people there. Yeah. And so eventually I sat my wife down. I'm like, you're, you're not going to believe this, but I think God told me um, to, that we're supposed to start a church in Las Vegas. And I was expecting this emotional outburst of right. like, what? And she went, whatever. And I said, what do you mean? She said, do you want to move to Las Vegas? I'm like, no. And she's like, whatever. And got up and started to walk away. Like, you know, that's silly kind of a thing. And then she stopped and said, do you really think it was God? And I said, yes. And she said, well, then we have to do it. And I said, we're not going to do it. I said, I'm mm-hmm. not, how do, how do I know that was God? I'm not going to leave everything we've built here and our lives here just because maybe God said something to me. I mean, how can I really know? Yeah. And that was followed by like gotcha. these strangers and just all these things happen. And I mean, it was weird. Cause I, I said that day, I'm like, if it's God, he can get us to a place where we know. Like right now, I think he said to me, but he's capable yes. of making it clear. That's good. And so- I can't uh, tell you, uh, that's an amazing story. I can't tell you how bad I wanted that story to result in that your dog spoke to you, like Balaam's donkey, <laughs> and, yes. and and said you're supposed to plant a church in Vegas. That would be, the next time you tell the story, I would just alter that one detail. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So then yes. tell me, so you guys started uh, Verve. Yeah. Um, and so how many years ago was that? By five and a few months. All right. And so tell me a little bit about Verve. Like what are some of the, I mean, you're, you're, you planted a church for people who work and live in, on, or around the Las Vegas strip. Like, so that's going to have some unique cultural characteristics I would think as a church. So tell me a little bit about what some of those are. Yeah. And, and, uh, the cool thing is this book, God, for the rest of us, I share some of the stories. I mean, the book is not about those people. It's about you, the person reading the book, but I share some uh, uh, stories I think are pretty amazing that God's done. So yeah, there are some great churches in Las Vegas, but they're out in the suburbs. They're most of them are 20, 25 minutes from the strip. Some of them are 15, 20 minutes. Uh, and so we wanted to be a church like on the strip or right off the strip for the people who work there and live there. And so that's what we did. And, uh, it's been, uh, wild. So the first person we led to faith, the first person I baptized was a pimp. Um, if, yeah, when we went to Las Vegas, if you had said, do you think you'll ever reach a pimp? I would say, (laughs) I can't imagine how that could happen, but that would be awesome if that happened. Same category as like my dog talking to me and telling me to go to Vegas. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And so that literally was the first person who I led to faith and he made his decision in a Starbucks and, we, uh, he, so he, his wife had left him because he was sleeping with his girls. He was kind of an amateur pimp. He had only been at it for like a year or two. Okay. And, um, this sounds funny. Amateur pimp. Yeah. I don't know if anyone's ever used that term before, yeah. but, um, but, uh, so we, uh, baptized him and then his wife and then, uh, renewed their wedding vows wow. and they got back together. And today he's actually working on starting a church here in Las Vegas in a different part of town, kind of the artsy hipster kind of area. Okay. And so like, he's actually made this journey in about six years from pimp, amateur pimp to amateur pastor. Awesome. And so just, yeah, wild. And, um, we had uh, another guy who came, so he's a, 
his name is Warren. He's an evil, fire-breathing clown in a horror show in Las Vegas and a hardcore atheist. All his friends are atheists and Satanists. And um, he heard about our church starting and decided to try to destroy our church. He thought, man, there's... uh, like it's a new church. There can't be that many people and the people can't be that committed to sticking with it. They're brand new. And so he decided to, to show up and in the middle of the service, when the pastor got up to preach, to just stand up and scream curse words, throw things, hit people thinking, uh, you know, nobody's going to come back, which actually right. isn't a bad plan. If I went to a new restaurant in the middle of me eating dinner, some guy stood up and started screaming and throwing plates I would understand it's not the restaurant's fault, but I might be like, I don't want to go back there. It's, <laughs> totally. It's, yeah. And so, um, so he shows up and he's a big, intimidating looking guy. He's 300 and something pounds, but not like a fat guy, just a real thick, big guy. Yeah. And uh, shaved head, tattoos everywhere, just scowls. And he showed up and walked in thinking, uh, wait till they get a load of me kind of thing. And um, just everybody was nice to him, loving. Uh, we play uh, secular music in the lobby. And he was like, weird. I know these songs, like he was expecting to be this, you know, holy, yeah. bizarre, you know, Christian thing. And, um, and so he walks into the service and picks his seat in the middle from where, from which he's going to disrupt everything. And the service starts and our band that day happened to open with a song, um, that we often open with secular songs that kind of lead into the theme of the day. Uh-huh. And it was one of his favorite bands. And that, and so he has this thought, I'm being punked. Like there, 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 this can't be real. I walk yeah. in, everyone's nice to me. And then the service starts with one of my favorite bands and one of my favorite songs. And so then, um, somebody came up, it was me. He didn't know that and welcomed everybody. And I, and we said, uh, I said, today we're going to talk about being spiritually dead, which I know sounds a little bit weird, but today we're going to consider the possibility that you may be spiritually dead and don't know it. And so the sermon was from Ephesians. We went, you know, word by word, verse by verse through that section. Uh, it talks about us being spiritually dead. But I said uh, in that opening, I said, now, the idea that you might be spiritually dead and not realize it makes me wonder if you could be physically dead and not realize it. And so just in case that's true, I want to help you with that and share with you the top 10 signs that you're physically dead. Yeah. And uh, and so it was a stupid top 10 list, things yeah. like... Um, you haven't breathed in 24 hours. Uh, you hear organ music and people keep saying, he looks so natural. <laughs> right. and so just, just some stuff. But Warren's sitting there going, what is this? Right. Uh, and so finally the service ends and we say, we'll see you next week. And Warren goes, oh, I, I forgot to do my thing. <laughs> I missed I my opportunity. So, yeah, he got so engaged in the service, he completely forgot his plan, starts showing up every week and um, eventually comes to faith. And I mean, it was the wildest thing when, when he got baptized. So we baptized people in the parking lot next to the dumpster behind our building, okay. the, the Holy of Holies. That's right. And we, we, in a kiddie pool, cause that's what we can afford. Yeah, that's what we did and, too. Awesome. And so he, um, Warren, we hand everybody a microphone, ask them to share their story before they get baptized. We handed Warren the microphone and he pointed at the water and said, um, he said, I've got a confession to make. I didn't come for this. I came because I hated you and I knew I could destroy you. But something is something has happened to me here. And he just starts weeping wow. and talking about how God loves me and I want more of it. And so finally he couldn't continue. So we took the microphone away, baptized him. And now uh, Warren uh, has led his fr- some of his atheists and th- Satanist friends to Christ. And actually Warren has baptized people in that kiddie pool. And Crazy. so- just yeah, all kinds of crazy stories that God has done here in Las Vegas. And like I said, I get to share some of those stories in the God for the Rest of Us book. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, it's well, I want to I want to talk about that, but just real quick, I wanted to ask one yeah. more question about the church in particular because I told my wife <clears throat> Tammy that I was interviewing you and that you pastor a church on the Strip, and her first reaction was, "Oh my gosh, that sounds horrible." <laughs> and so I and I think a lot of people could relate. I think when most people like, so I'm a church planter. I, like that sounds like one of the most difficult places to possibly start a church. Like one of the first things that I think is like, well, who actually lives like on the strip? And so I was just curious, like what have been some of the most significant challenges? Clearly God has done amazing work uh, and is bringing people to himself, which I'm so thrilled about that. But what have been some of the unique challenges to being on the strip? Yeah. So just uh, to for clarity, we're not on the strip. We're just off the strip. Okay. Our, our original idea was to be on the strip. And we did 300 and something interviews with locals when we moved here. And, and most of them didn't go to church. And one of the questions we asked was, um, what do you think about a church on the strip where you work? And we got a bunch of, uh, and it was like, what's the, uh, and they're like, I just don't want to have to fight the traffic totally. another day. Yep. I don't want to have to walk through a casino. You know, they're, they're yep. huge. And, and so we're like, okay, note to self, we don't want to be on the strip. So we're just off of it. Gotcha. Um, so some of the challenges there's, there's the obvious, you know, what everyone thinks of, which is the sin factor. You know, it's like, man, yeah. these people love their sin and everything. And that, that's a little bit of a challenge, but I think that's everywhere. Just, you know, Las Vegas puts it front and center. Right. And so it looks a little different. And it is true that a lot of the people we reach or are trying to reach um, coming to Christ involves a question about, can I continue in my job? Yeah. And so we've had quite a few people who have had to quit their jobs, even move out of Las Vegas to get away from some of the temptations and that they struggle with. And so there's that. Um Probably a bigger issue is uh, that the city is so loud. So in Virginia Beach, where we started the church, if we did something for the community, people heard about it. You know, we used to buy uh, mobile homes and we would completely redo the inside. We would have, you know, we had carpenters and electricians and stuff. We would make the most incredible mobile homes and give them away to homeless families. Okay. And every time we did it, the news would call. We didn't call the news. They would just call and say, hey, we heard about it. I'm like, how did you hear about it? And they're like, we've got our sources or whatever. Yeah. It doesn't matter what we do in Las Vegas. No one notices. It's yeah. just such a loud say that the newspapers is filled. Like page two and three are filled with who's in town right now. You know, Paris right. Hilton's here or whatever. And so it's just real hard for people to even, you know, to get their attention or for them to know we exist. Um, and another real challenge is, and it's hard to describe unless you live here, but there is an incredible lack of community in Las Vegas. And so like neighbors don't talk to their neighbors. When we got here, we made cookies. We had about 16 people move with us and we all made cookies and went and knocked on our neighbor's doors and said, hey, we just moved right across the street. We're your new neighbors. Just wanted to say hi. We made you some cookies. And we had uh, people who said, F you and your cookies and slammed doors and faces. Wow. Um, yeah. It, we had almost no one took the cookies. Uh, most people wouldn't even open the doors, even though we could see like two cars in the driveway. <laughs> right. And uh, probably the most common thing was people were like, where are you from? And we'd be like, oh, Virginia Beach. Just moved here. And they're like, yeah, we don't do this kind of thing in Las Vegas. And we'd like shut the door in our face. Hmm. And so, you know, when you tell your people, hey, invite your neighbors, invite my neighbors, I don't yeah. even know my neighbors. And yeah. so we've been trying to, to break that. We've been throwing block parties all over and, and we've equipped our people with stuff to throw block parties and kind of training to throw a block party and trying to create community in communities that, where it doesn't exist. Yeah. But it is a real big challenge. Sorry to interrupt the conversation, but I wanted to tell you about a new project I'm excited about and I think you will be too. 
My good friend and worship pastor at Redemption Bible Church has just recorded and released his first five-song EP called Lift You Higher. You probably don't know, but Scott does all the editing and engineering for In the Room, so if you've enjoyed the podcast as much as I have, we are both indebted to Scott. Lift You Higher is made up of five songs that we love and we believe will increase your affection for Jesus and give you fresh words to worship Him. Lift You Higher is available everywhere digital music is sold, so take a few minutes and check it out on iTunes or Spotify. If it blesses you, we'd be honored if you shared it with a friend or help us spread the word on social media. So when you're done listening to this episode of In the Room, jump on over to iTunes or Spotify and check out Lift You Higher from my friend Scott Holdhouse. I know one of the things I read in your bio was that you do some stand up as well, yeah, uh, which yeah. I think is pretty fascinating. I love stand up, but I was wondering how stand up for you compares to preaching, um, and if right. there's correlation, things that you've learned between the two. I've heard multiple great preachers really commend listening to stand ups because it's one of the only other you know vocations right. where people actually pay to show up to listen to like one person talk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, what have been some of the things that you've learned uh, in the midst of that? Yeah. So, yeah, and I didn't do stand because I wanted to be a comedian. I did it because when we moved here, I didn't know anyone, uh-huh. and I wanted to I wanted to know people, and I also wanted to have some kind of feeling of what it's like to work on the strip because I wanted to reach people work on the strip, and I have no idea. And so somehow I thought, well, I'm kind of funny. Uh, I could do stand up, and so I started doing open mic nights, and then I got hired for a show that was actually in a casino. Um, it wasn't. It's not as impressive as it sounds. Um, yeah it wasn't that great of a show and actually ended up getting kicked out of the casino because it was too obscene. It's really hard to get kicked out of a casino for being too obscene. <laughs> but, um, and so I haven't, I'm not in that show anymore, but, uh, the, I would say the biggest difference is, so if I go up and speak for whatever, 30 minutes in a sermon, if I tell a couple jokes, people are really happy. Like they don't expect that. It's right. like, Oh, he's funny. Right. Oh, like I laughed while I'm learning about God. Yeah. You know, that's really cool. In uh, in comedy, if you're not funny for a minute, it's like, what is he doing up there totally, to roll yeah. that down? And so that was the biggest thing. It's just like, um, just the pace that you know you like. You want people you, you, like so. When I first started doing it, what I realized was my build up to each joke was too long, and I think it came from the preacher background yeah. of like. I can talk to you for a long time and you're going to listen to me. And then when I hit you with a joke, that's awesome. Uh, But with comedy, it was like I would be telling this thing and I'd go 30 seconds, 60 seconds, and then hit the punchline. It was like, oh, man, these people don't seem real happy. And so just trying to have that pacing of how can I make you know get you to laugh every two sentences or so. Um, The thing that definitely helped me comedy-wise is – so I, when I was doing open mic uh, nights, there were a lot of people who were new to comedy like I was, and they were just very anxious about being on stage. And for me, like, every, yeah, everybody was like, you're so good. And I don't think it was, I don't think they meant you're so funny. I think they meant you're, you're so good on, yeah. yeah. And so that was a huge help. And I think, you know, propelled me way faster than most people who would yeah. start out. I could probably ask you like 10 more questions about that, but I want to shift and I want to talk about the book. Yeah. And uh, so the book's called God for the Rest of Us, uh, Experience Unbelievable Love, Unlimited Hope, and Uncommon Grace. So tell me just a little bit about why you wrote the book in general. Yeah. So my biggest goal for this book is to help people to really embrace and live in God's love. 
And um, what, what I have found for me, so I grew up with an abusive dad and in addition to all the gambling stuff and all that. But, uh, and so I grew up just having this sense that I was unlovable. And so when I came to faith in Jesus, honestly, uh, if, you, if you gave me true serum and said, does God love everyone? My answer would have been yes, except me. And as a Christian, like I, I struggled with this my, my whole Christian life it is, you know, I know God loves everybody, but I don't know so much that he loves me. Mm-hmm. And as a pastor, I found that's a struggle a lot of people have. And so some of them, it's just this constant sense of, um, man, I don't know that I'm good enough for God. I don't know if God loves me. And then for some of them, it's like when I screw up. You know, when I when I realize I've sinned, I don't feel comfortable praying, or maybe I don't want to, you know, show up at church or taking communion's weird because I know I sinned. And so there's this there's something about the the perfect unconditional love of God that we don't really embrace, understand, and live in. And so my biggest hope for this book is that people will read it and just have God's love redefined for them in a way that that really transforms their lives. And so um, that, that is definitely my biggest hope. My second biggest hope and goal for the book is that Christians will feel compelled to share that love with others. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, my whole growing up and never having anyone mention Jesus to me uh, just man, it makes my heart hurt. And so if, my, you know, if people read this book and are like, wow, God's love is bigger and better than I ever realized – and the next thought is, I can't keep that to myself. Right. And, uh, you know, maybe it's uncomfortable, uh, you know, f- trying to figure out how do I share my faith or how do I get people to know God? Um, but, but I have to. And I actually hope the book actually gives some tools and helps equip people a little bit to share it. I think there's stories in it and some chapters in it that will help people to go, oh, I actually think I can do this. Yeah. Maybe it's not as hard as I think it is. I want to ask you a couple questions about kind of that secondary goal. Uh-huh. Um, what are some, what do you think are some of the factors that make it so difficult for us to love others? Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, so here, I think I'm going to answer your question. So I think, uh, for a lot of people, one of the, for a lot of Christians, um, what we, we feel like, uh, sharing our faith, doing evangelism, whatever you want to call it is convincing people that they're wrong and I'm right, you know? And so here's the way I I think about it is I think there's two things every person needs, truth and love. And uh, there's two things that every Christian has to offer, truth and love. So it's like, yay, perfect match. Yeah. Uh, The problem is that Christians tend to focus on the truth part and lead with truth. We we feel like, you know, if I have a coworker, if I have a neighbor and they're doing something wrong, I need to correct that. And, And if they don't believe in Jesus, I need to convince them that they should. And so we lead with truth. We focus on truth. The deal though, is that what we need to do is lead with love. And because no one woke up this morning thinking, man, I hope somebody convinces me that I'm wrong today. You know, people, <laughs> right. people don't want to be convinced that they're wrong. And part of, part of this, the truth part, maybe is convincing people that they're wrong. But everyone woke up this morning thinking, I want to be loved. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they didn't think that, but everybody wants to be loved. Yeah. And so if we would just focus on the loving part uh, and, and really love people, man, it's incredible what happens. You yeah. know, when we lead with truth, it shuts people down. But when we lead with love, it opens people up. And then later sharing the truth with them is way easier than we ever imagined it would be. It's good. And so, yeah, I think we need to lead with love. I think one thing for, for a lot of Christians that makes it hard to love, to better maybe answer your question, yeah. is I think we're afraid if I know this person is sinning, if I know that they're not living like they should, and I love them and accept them right where they're at, well, then maybe they're going to take that as a license to keep sinning. And um, 
what so they may make that mistake at times. I don't, I don't think typically that's what happens at yeah. all, but they may make that mistake. But even if they do, it's worth the the risk. And the reason I can say that is because God took that risk. You know, God knew that His love was so audacious and huge that people would sometimes mistake it for an acceptance of sin or a license to sin. Right. Uh, and we see that like in Romans chapter six in the Bible, where people are like, "Oh." Since there's grace, we can just keep on sinning. And right. Paul's like, no, 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 you misunderstood. Right. But, but, but God knew Romans 6 was going to happen. You know, God didn't yeah. go, what? People in Rome think they can keep on He knew that, and he still took the risk. He, he thought, you know, loving people is so important. I'm willing to take the risk that they might misunderstand it as an acceptance of sin. And so that rarely, if ever, happens. But even if it does, it's worth the risk. We just need to love people. Yeah. I, I wonder, I heard a pastor one time say that he only wanted to preach about the love of God because he believed that people already know they're sinners. And <clears throat> I disagree with that. I think, I think that, I think that people know intrinsically something is broken. Like if we can get quiet long enough, we know something's wrong. I think a yeah. lot of the time though, we don't think it's us. We think it's an external factor. Right. So I completely agree with what you're saying. And, and I think that the emphasis on the love, not, not, I don't even feel like you're emphasizing love over truth. You're like, Hey, don't forget. We're supposed to do both. And, well, and to so me it's even more the chronology of it. It's yeah. we need to do both, but do it in the right order. Love yeah. then truth. You know, if I, if I don't have a relationship with you, I start trying to share truth. I wouldn't listen. You know, if, right. if somebody I never met starts telling me I should stop drinking diet Coke cause it has aspartame or whatever. I'd be like, who are you to, yeah. t- to tell me? But if they loved me for a while and really showed me they cared about me, and then said that, I'd be like, man, thanks for, thanks for caring enough about me to tell me what you think. And so, yeah, so I think you need to do both. The thing I really try to emphasize is the order. Just mm-hmm. love people. Be patient. We don't need to change people today. We don't need to convince them today. You know, let's pray that they have more time and we have more time with them and yeah. just love people because that's the only way it works. And that's what we see Jesus doing. Yeah. You know, he, he would build, start a relationship. You know, he went and had lunch at Zacchaeus's house and then something happens, you know, and he, he hung out with a Samaritan woman and so love people. And then, like you said, you have to present truth, Yeah, but I just don't think you start there. Yeah. Can I ask you though, as a pastor and a preacher, I guess, in particular, uh-huh. um, how do you address sin without alienating the sinner? You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause that's what, yeah. like, if we're all truth and no love, that's what happens. We address sin, but you alienate the sinner. And Jesus right. did address sin and did not alienate the sinner. So for you, especially like, let's just talk in the context as a preacher, how do you, how, how do you do that? Is it, are you just intentional in your, in, in the chronology of your individual sermon that I'm going to load love and then talk Mm -hmm. about truth on the back end or just talk to me about that practically? Yeah. That's part of it for sure. Yeah. And and that's a great question. Um, And so, and it's something we do every, almost every week. I mean, there's rarely weeks where we don't in some way talk about sin. And we're reaching 70% of the people who come are unchurched non-Christians when they first show up. We do a survey every year and uh, and a lot of them are really far from God. And so you're right. It's like, how do I, how do I talk to them about their sin without making them walk out on me and never come back? And so I think part of it is I like I said, loading love. It's you know starting the starting the message with stories, love, humor, but something that makes them go, okay, you're not just somebody here who's you know here to slap me because I'm messing right. up. You seem to be a genuine guy who cares about people. And so, I mean, I can't, I, you know, in a relationship with my neighbor, I would like to take weeks or months of loving that person before sure. I would get to truth in a sermon. I got, you know, I don't have that kind of time, yeah, right. but I want to at least spend the first part of the sermon 
establishing who I am. Uh, one of the other big things is I try as much as possible to, to say us instead of you, yeah. um, you know, we That's instead good. of you, that it's not, I'm not pointing out your sins. Mm-hmm. I'm saying, Hey, we've all got problems yeah. and we're all struggling and here's God's answer, you know, and here's a path to something better. And here's why sin causes damage in our lives. And so I think that just sounds a lot different totally. than saying you screw, you know, you're this, you're that. It's like, Hey, I'm with you. Yeah. And you know, it's not, and I'm not even just talking about my past. Still, I've got struggles today and I'm trying to figure it out. Yeah. I wonder, uh, in you know, if you look through even the chapters in your book, it's basically, and then you, I think you have a small passage in the back that's like this long alphabetical list of all the yeah. types of, and basically, big idea: God loves everybody. Not to right. spoiler alert, but, <laughs> um, and so I just had this question as I was reading through and looking at it, like, what type of person? Because you seem like like this is just this comes natural for you to some extent, and that you are a very, I'll t- tell you right, you're way more loving than I am. Like I, I have a level of cynicism. I think that makes it more difficult for me than what it seems to be for you. But I was wondering and reading through this and reading about you, like what type of person do you struggle to love on a, just like a personal, like, is there a, um, like where that just doesn't like clearly like pimps, hookers, gamblers, like, like you, right. that, that, that seems to come very, is it, is it like the more pharisaical yeah. self, right? Like who do you, right. who do you find? Like, I have a hard time loving this guy. That's a great question. I've never been asked that. Um, I would say for sure, uh, yeah, the Pharisaical kind of Christians, and I've I, and I have had that thought of like, you know, I I I don't like that they judge people, but I judge them for judging people, yeah. and you know, and and I but I kind of feel justified in doing it, and you know, and, and I, my argument would be, well, Jesus said, "Woe to you," you know, that was right. the one people he really kind of condemned in a, in a sense, and and so, but that would be a group I have trouble with. Um, one, one other is, and so this is going to sound funny with yeah. where I am, but when I walk through casinos, which you, which I do in, in living in Las Vegas, it's just kind of a normal thing. Yeah. When I walk through casinos and see people, uh, just sitting there, you know, and is some of them, it looks like, man, you've been there for hours right. all night, maybe, uh, throwing money in. I don't know if I have trouble loving them, but I ha- but I struggle not to judge them. I, I think it's probably not. It's probably for my my dad. Sure, and, yeah. You know, he just went through money like crazy, yeah. and our money. You know, we we had times where I mean, we lived like my my family had depression era kind of times where we had nothing to eat and whatever because my dad had lost everything, right. and so that is has been an interesting struggle where um, when we have some people with gambling addictions that I have, you know, knowing their story, I think that's the thing is. Um, people, people become real easy to love when you hear their story, you know, when they're just a stereotype, that's a gambler, that's a, you know, whatever it is, it's hard for you, a transgender or this or that, uh, a stereotype's easy to judge. But when you hear the person's story and the pain of their story and what brought them, then it's like, oh, it becomes real easy not to judge and love. But yeah, just walking through the casinos, not individual gamblers, but just seeing all these people just dumping their money away. I, I get judgmental feelings that I don't like in myself. Yeah. Well, I know one of the things I've tried to grow in as a preacher in the last six, seven years is I know for sure when we started our church, I was, I was preaching at and two caricatures. Um, uh, and I've, I've tried really to, to honestly, to speak less to issues that I don't have faces attached to because, uh, that those are people, you know, like if, right. if I'm going, like I'm in the middle of a series right now on sexuality, abortion, and racism, it's a real, it's a real fun one. Let me tell you. <laughs> Light stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, when I'm working through and I, I know that 
what I what when I'm going to preach what the Bible says about sexuality, it will be against what is the like that God's God's opinion is different than what's normative in culture right now. Right. And so if if I'm not careful about making sure like like if you've ever had to explain that to someone across a cup of coffee, it's a lot different than doing it from a pulpit. Because yeah. there's a person, you're looking into somebody's eyes. And I just think that that makes such yeah. a tremendous, you're getting to see the impact of your words on their face mm-hmm. and what, what that, as that reality sets in. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, that, that, but that has radically altered the way that I preach. And I think the compassion with which I'm able to come across, even in saying difficult things, uh, because people can feel that like, no, he's preaching to people, not just, you know, cartoon characters that he's drawn yeah. up in his mind, which is just yeah. super damaging. Yeah. I love that. That's why one of the things I teach church planners is preach like you would, uh, sitting at your table if you had a guest over for dinner, yeah, you totally. know? So if you started talking about whatever that issue is, yeah, abortion, well, what if you would, what would you say to a, knowing I'm having people over for dinner and two of them have had abortions? That's right. Because, you know, some of the, some of the ways preachers will rail on stuff. It's like, you wouldn't do, I, I, hope, I hope you wouldn't do that with somebody sitting across from you at your own dinner table. Right. And so what's the difference, yeah. you know, when you, when that person's sitting across from you in, in a church, uh, in a bigger group. Yeah. So I love what you just said. Yeah. yeah. So what would you say, um, then this is, I, I kind of want to close with this because I think okay. that obviously, obviously I think the book, I would just say, if you're, if anyone who is listening is struggling to believe that God loves them, this is a really important book for them to read. And then just to get everybody else to buy it as well, I would say that it's a really, it's a really amazing book about evangelism, I think as well. And, and, and so I want you to speak to that second group if you could. And what would you say to those who are like, I can't imagine being in a place like Las Vegas. I can't imagine having to love, you know, these unlovable type of people. Um, and so there's just someone that even in the midst of our conversation is realizing like, I suck at loving people. (laughs) What would you, how would you, what would you say to them in trying to grow their, like, how do they go about pursuing the growth of their affection and love for the people that God has created? Yeah, that's great. Um, and thanks for what you said about the book. Uh, so, you know, I'd start with, you know, there's Las Vegas in your town. And yeah. what I mean is, you know, so we've got strip clubs, like right on the highway. Yours might be on a back road over by the airport, but, but there's strip clubs and yep. there's strippers. Yeah. And, you know, for us, you know, prostitutes can just walk, you know, you, it's like, eh, right there. And in, in your town, there's probably some street, you know, that you don't, yeah. but it's all there. It's just not front and center. And the thing is, when you look at Jesus, he, um, he always went to the places he wasn't supposed to go and to the people he wasn't supposed to go. You know, he, he's, uh, he's in Matthew, the tax collector's house and all the Pharisees are sitting outside going, what is he doing in there? He goes into Samaria and people are like, you're not supposed to go into Samaria. He talks to a woman. You're not supposed to talk to a woman. This woman's, you know, been sexually promiscuous. You're not supposed to talk to someone like that. He goes to Zacchaeus's house. Um, when he goes to Jerusalem, the holy city, finally he's in the right place. He goes straight to the pool where all the people hang out hoping for a healing because of some myth that has nothing to do with God. It's like, no, everywhere in Jerusalem, that's the place you shouldn't go. And so I would say if we're, if we're truly following Jesus, if we're not just calling ourselves followers of Jesus, but I'm truly trying to follow Jesus, well, Jesus didn't change. And so Jesus would go to the people that, uh, are hard to love, the people who seem maybe least open to God and his love and his truth. Uh, he would go to the places that 
you know, Christ, you know, holy people aren't supposed to go to. Right. And so I think the first question is, are we really, are we really serious about following Jesus? Cause if we are, we'll go there. Um, and then the thing that I found helps me to love people who are hard to love is just being with them. Like, like I said earlier, hearing their stories, you know, what I found. So when I became a Christian, I didn't know a Christian and all my friends were non-Christians and I just wanted to help all of them know Jesus. So I'm like, this incredible thing has happened in my life. And so, I mean, it became challenging for me to talk about anything else, to care about my grades in school. I just wanted everyone to know Jesus. And then I eventually went to seminary where I was surrounded by Christians. And then I went to, uh, I did an internship at a humongous church. I think they had 11 or 12,000 people at the time surrounded by Christians. And what I found is the more I was around Christians, the more difficult it was for me to have a heart and compassion for people who are far from God. And so the secret I found is when I hang out with people who are far from God and I hear their stories and I hear their pain, my heart grows for them. When I keep them at a distance for whatever reason, my heart kind of grows cold towards them. That's good. And so, yeah, I would just challenge people, you know, find people who need love and there's lots of them wherever you live. Uh, get to those people, figure out how do we get into places where Jesus would go and maybe people who are supposed to be holy aren't supposed to and get yourself around people who are hurting and are far from God and listen to their stories. And I think you'll find something happen in you that you'll be transformed by it. That's great advice. Uh, Vince, I'm super thankful for you and oh, man, thank uh, you. for Verve and the book. Uh, so God for the rest of us, we'll link it up in the show notes and everything awesome. so everybody Thanks. can find it. And uh, I'm hoping a lot of people uh, read it and we're praying for you guys, man. Thankful well, for We you. need it. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks. My thanks to Vince for taking the time to chat. And as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen in. As always, I hope that you found it helpful. Don't forget that you can stop by my blog at ryanhugley.com for all the ways you and I can stay connected via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There you'll also find any additional show notes that you may want from today's episode. Until next week, I count it an honor to learn with you. I love you and thanks for listening.